0: Today, our study is basically an addendum, or a little addition, if you please, to our two-part study that we've enjoyed on the battle in the brain. You may recall that we ended our second study, or our last study, talking about the servants of God, or His special chosen ones, or the 144,000. Today, I want to go into a little more detail about this special company of individuals who who will not only live through the final events of Earth's history, but will come off more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. In a recent midweek service, Brother Jim, our head elder, shared some thoughts that I'd like to use as sort of a framework, if you please, for today's presentation. His comments had to do with cycles of history. And I think you'll find this rather interesting in light of what we've talked about in our last two presentations. Actually, Jim broke down the battle in the brain that we've been doing into three major sections of people groups. The first group covered the period of the fall to the flood. This period was around 2,000 years of time. In the garden, you may recall, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect environment as our world began and because everything they saw and heard and touched and tasted and smelled stimulated only good thoughts. Their emotional control center, or the amygdala we've talked about, produced only good feelings. By the time we come to Noah's day, the good thoughts and the good feelings had been completely reversed or replaced with bad thoughts and bad feelings. In other words, by that time, Satan actually claimed the old world as his. But Noah, you'll remember, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the second people group that he mentioned to us at our midweek service covered the history from the flood up to the cross. Again, this was a period of around 2,000 years, taking us from Noah to the days of Jesus and his disciples. Now, the point that we need to keep in mind is that even after Jesus started over again, by the time he was born in Bethlehem, the new world, if you please, was also being claimed by Satan. Listen to this commentary from the book Desire of Ages, pages 36 through 37. It talks about the world at the time Jesus was born. It says, and I quote, Satanic agencies were incorporated with men. The bodies of human beings made for the dwelling place of God had become the habitation of demons. The senses, those five senses we've talked about before, the nerves, the passions or emotions, the organs of men were worked by supernatural agencies in the indulgence of the vilest lust. Sin had become a science. And vice was consecrated as a part of religion. Rebellion had struck its root deep into the heart, and the hostility of man was most violent against heaven. At the very crisis when Satan seemed about to triumph and was exalting that he had succeeded in debasing the image of God in humanity, Jesus came. I like that. I love that little statement. Jesus came with the message of divine grace or the life-giving power of God. He came to restore in man the image of his maker. He came to expel the demons that had controlled the will or man's power of choice and decision. In other words, Satan had once again taken possession of the thoughts and the feelings of mankind. But Jesus came to set the captives free To lift mankind from the dust, to reshape the marred character after the pattern of his divine character, and to make it beautiful with his own glory, end quote. That's a profound thought. And thus, a third people group, if you please, was started. This time, it was the early church led by the disciples of Jesus himself. And for nearly 2,000 years again... The battle between Christ and Satan, this time, is over the people of God. What's most interesting about this growing battle is that we're living in the last part of the third cycle of earth's history. In other words, we represent the time just before the flood, or just before Jesus' first coming, or to be more exact, we represent the generation just before his second coming. It's a time when once again Satan is claiming the world as his. Not only does he have the majority of people on his side, he even has the great majority of the religious world on his side. This is the way the Apostle Paul described the condition of the church in the days of that final cycle, the last generation. Notice what Paul says. Men at that time will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power of God or the power of His Spirit to the, give them victory over self, sin, and Satan. End quote. Today, there's very little biblical unity among the organized religions of the world, and even less, may I suggest, among the more liberated and independent movements that are expressing their freedoms around the world today. God's Word, the Bible is no longer relevant, nor is it considered to be the unquestionable guide and final authority on anything. As a result, the independent expressions from our post-modern generation are becoming a familiar echo of an old rebellion against the authority of God and His infallible Word. Mysticism, New Age, Humanism, Pop psychology, human philosophy, science falsely so called, and now postmodernism have taken the place of a thus saith the Lord. As the final people group of the world, we are nearing the point where our thoughts and feelings today are focused almost continually on self, sin, and Satan. However, in our last study of the battle in the brain, we saw that God's word, the Bible, stated very clearly that there will be a group of individuals who will stand on this old earth with minds that have been completely healed, having a perfect balance between their thoughts and feelings. And through the power of God, they will live as Jesus lived when he was here. Upon the earth. What Brother Jim helped me see in our midweek service is that since the fall of our first parents, God has worked through three major cycles of history of about 2,000 years each. What is also evident is that at the close of each cycle, Satan claimed the entire world as his. But it never really was his. Because Jesus always came through in behalf of a few of his people. Amen. And he, beloved, will come through again one more time. Only this time he will have 144,000 living saints. Not one of whom will bow the knee to Satan or to this old world which he claims as his. Then, beloved, Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 will be fulfilled. For the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he, God, will reign forever and forever. Now, that's all introduction. A little review, if you please. So before we get into... Today's study, which I've entitled God's Cleansing Work, I just want to say for the record that even though our thoughts and feelings, reflecting back to what we've talked about in our two preceding presentations, even though our thoughts and feelings combined make up our moral character, and our character is the only thing we can take to heaven, we are much more, I'm suggesting today, than just a combination of our thoughts and and feelings or character. We are us. That's pretty profound, isn't it? <laughs> we are us. In other words, we will take our characters to heaven with us. We will also go to heaven with our thoughts and feelings. Therefore, we must not conclude we are our character or we are our thoughts and feelings. In other words, what I'm saying, beloved, we are much more than that. Listen to this little statement according to a book called Education, page 17. We're told here that we're actually human beings made in the image of God and endowed with a power akin to that of our creator, individuality, if you please, power to think and to do, end quote. For the sake of trying to illustrate the battle which is being waged over us individually, I've used the brain as sort of our illustration for the battleground. And that's why we've talked about it. And I had my little bowl up here, you'll recall, with the two little eggs in it. But please, please, don't think of your brain as being you. It's only a part, if you please, of a complete complex whole for the divine pleasure of God himself. Now, with that little clarification, let's get into today's study, which is about God's cleansing work in our lives. If God does the cleansing, as the title implies then what is our responsibility? Are we just to ask, believe, and claim, and then go on with our lives? Or is there a special work for us to do with reference to our salvation? Let me attempt to answer those questions in two parts, if I may. First, the Apostle Paul told his jailer, some of you will remember that story, when Paul and Silas were in prison in stocks, and they were singing songs. Do you remember that? The Apostle Paul told his jailer that night in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would be saved. By simply choosing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, the jailer was given the gift of salvation and declared to be clean before the Lord. That's simple. In theological terms, we call this justification, where one stands before God just as if he had not sinned. In short, justification is God's covering. Just a neat little thought to keep in mind. God's justification is his covering. Now, even though the story of the jailer sounds rather simple, Let's go over it again and see what he actually had to do in order to be justified, okay? Before the jailer could believe on Jesus as his personal Savior, he had to recognize he needed a Savior. In other words, he needed to accept the fact that he was a sinner and was totally lost without God. Next, he needed to confess his sins before God and repent of his sins, acknowledging that without God he could never, never be saved. And in the Bible, verse 32, we find that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. In other words, after understanding his need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ was his only hope of salvation, the jailer exercised his power of choice. Not only did he accept Jesus as his personal Savior from sin, but he also chose to exercise his faith in Jesus by being baptized in his name according to verse 33. In summary, because he confessed his sins and repented of his sins, and acknowledged Jesus as his only Savior, and accepted him by faith, and demonstrated his belief in Christ by being baptized, God declared him clean, and covered him with his robe of righteousness. Thus he was justified by God's covering. Are we together? But there's a second part we need to understand about God's cleansing work as well. In John 1, verse 12, and I hope you write down some of these little statements and look them up for yourself. In John 1, verse 12, I read these words, and listen carefully. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, end quote. The jailer we just talked about was a believer in Jesus Christ. He was even baptized in his name, but John says there is more for the believer than just being declared clean or being justified by God's covering. Notice what he says. In receiving Jesus and believing on him, one is given the power to become a son or daughter of God. Now follow me, just because you've been declared clean and have been declared righteous or have been justified doesn't mean your character is suddenly reflecting the image of God as a mature son or daughter of God. That's why, may I suggest, God gives those who believe in Him or those who receive Him the power of His Spirit so they can become a new creation or a true son and daughter of God. Does that make sense? It is only through this abiding presence of God's Spirit that victory can actually become a reality in our life. Our old habits. Our old inherited and cultivated tendencies to evil can only be overcome as we experience this new life in Christ on a day-to-day basis. Jesus said in Mark 4, verse 28, The earth brings forth its fruit, first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. In other words, when you and I were born, we were born with a rebel heart. We had a natural bent towards sinning, a tendency toward evil, if you please. And unless somewhere along the line we're born again, by exercising our God-given power of choice, we will grow from blade to ear to full corn as an adult rebel. That's just the way we will go, unless we're born again. But if we choose this new birth or choose to start over with Jesus, then he will give us the power of his spirit, which will create in us a new heart, thus giving us a new life and a new direction, so that as a new blade, we will begin to grow in grace and in a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And over time, we will mature into an ear and then into full corn and eventually, when the fruit is brought forth, according to Mark 4.29, immediately Jesus will put in the sickle because what? The harvest has come. What I'm saying, beloved, is that this process of spiritual growth has a theological term in Scripture. We call it sanctification which according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, is the will of God for all those who have been born again. The ultimate tragedy, maybe you can think of one worse than this, is for a baby to be born and show no signs of life. In order to live, one has to grow. In Hebrews 2, verse 11, the author says, For both he who sanctifies, that's God, and those who are being sanctified, I hope and pray that's us, are all of one. In other words, God and us are one in the process. For which reason he's not ashamed to call us brethren. What this is simply saying, beloved, is that when we choose to accept Jesus as our Savior from sin, He will give us the power of His Spirit, which will create in us a brand new heart, whereby we can begin that spiritual process of sanctification or of growing in His grace and in an ever-increasing knowledge of His will for our lives. As we cooperate with God by continually choosing to submit our will to His, we become sons and daughters of God. The biblical summary now, listen carefully. In biblical summary, we can say that justification is God's covering, which declares us to be clean. While sanctification is God's cleansing, which makes us clean. One is a declaration, and the other is a reality. Let me add another important biblical insight right here. It's one we need to understand in light of these two terms, justification and sanctification. I'm saying that justification is a resurrection righteousness. It's the kind of righteousness that Jesus promised the thief on the cross when he said, Assuredly, I say unto you today... You will be with me in paradise. Jesus promised the thief that day, Friday afternoon, that when he returned to set up his everlasting kingdom, he would remember the thief in his coming kingdom. And when the righteous dead are raised to life again, the justified thief will be among the resurrected righteous who will stand justified through the blood of Calvary's cross. Does that make sense? What I'm saying. Let me say it in another way. The justified thief represents those who have been justified but have died before they reach that final stage of maturity which goes beyond the blade, beyond the ear, and beyond the full corn in the ear. And this brings me to the term sanctification which in its fullest sense is a translation righteousness. Note again, we have a resurrection righteousness and a translation righteousness. Now, having heard these terms for the first time, there are those who might ask, is God using a double standard here? And the answer is no. For once you understand the final days of the great controversy, which Daniel records as a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, then you will begin to see why a greater faith and righteousness are going to be needed than at any other time in the history of mankind. It's going to be a faith and righteousness that will stand in the face of the beast and his image and in the very presence of satanic forces, with Satan himself leading the attack against those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It will be the strongest assault against any people on earth since Jesus was personally attacked by Satan. But God's chosen servants will come off more than conquer because they have the mature fruit of Of the Spirit. Thus they will be waved before the universe as the first fruits of a mighty harvest that will follow. It is this final declaration of the mature fruit in the lives of the 144,000 which allows the harvest of the world to take place. According to Mark 4, verse 29, when the fruit of this ultimate faith And righteousness is finally brought forth. Immediately, Jesus will put in the sickle for the harvest of the earth will have come. As Bible Christians, this should be clear to us. Unfortunately, I don't think it is. It should be very clear in light of what happened at the beginning of the early church. For as it began, so it will end. Only in its climax, beloved, it will be with much greater power and manifestation of the glory of God. Just to refresh our minds, let's go back to the city of Jerusalem for a moment. It was Sunday evening. It was the day of Jesus' resurrection. The disciples had locked themselves into an upper room for fear of the Jews. According to the record of John in chapter 20 of his book, he tells how Jesus suddenly appears in their midst and shows them his hands and his side. It's here that Jesus also does something else. In verses 21 through 22, he says, as the father has sent me, I also send you. He gives them a commission, but he doesn't stop there. John says he does something else rather interesting. He says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now let me share with you, if I may, from the Desire of Ages, page 805, what was actually taking place here. Before the disciples could fulfill their official duties in connection with the church, Christ breathed his Spirit upon them. He was committing to them a most sacred trust, and he desired to impress them with the fact that without the Holy Spirit, this work could not be accomplished. Reading on, it says, The Holy Spirit is the breath of spiritual life in the soul. The impartation of the Spirit is the impartation of the life of Christ. It imbues the receiver with the attributes of Christ. End quote. Now, in order to stand as God's representatives before the church, the disciples needed to possess the inward working of God's Spirit. Thus, they were chosen to demonstrate before the church that was just beginning to grow, as well as the world around them, the fruit of God's Spirit. Now, this quarter, as you know, we've been studying about what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit. This is what Jesus breathed on his disciples. Now, we've discovered it simply means to have the spirit of Jesus in our life. It means to be imbued with his attributes or infused, if you please, or completely saturated with, such as a cloth that's absorbing the color of a dye. In short, it means to manifest the Christ life in one's own life. Is that clear? This transforming power of the Spirit, which brings love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness or kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness or humility and self-control into our life is a precious gift. And yet, in order for this gift to be seen in its fullness or in its completeness, and mature form, it has to grow up in Christ. Would you agree with that? That's why Jesus gave us the illustration of first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, or is fully mature, or completely ripe, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Now I know I'm repeating myself. I want you to see this picture. It's imperative that we understand what I'm talking about here in its overall context. Even though Jesus breathed upon his disciples the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they received the infusion of his glorious attributes, they were not empowered to proclaim the gospel to the world until after Jesus ascended to heaven. Key point. Listen to this incredible little statement again, same page, 805, Desire of Ages. And I'm quoting, The more abundant impartation of the Spirit did not take place till after Christ's ascension. Not until, don't miss this, Not until this was received could the disciples fulfill the commission to preach the gospel to the world. End quote. Did you catch that? Not until the early reign of Pentecostal power had fallen upon the disciples were they able or capable of fulfilling the great commission and preaching the gospel to the world. Now, beloved, this. this point to me is extremely important. For as it was, so shall it be. What Jesus did for his chosen representatives at the beginning of the gospel, he will do again for his chosen representatives at its close. In other words, not until the latter rain is poured out will his final representatives be able to fulfill the great commission and preach the gospel to the world. Take your Bible, if you would please, and let me show you what it says. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Under the inspiration of God, Peter sweeps over the entire history of our world in just five verses. You'll recall the early rain had just fallen upon the disciples and they were now carrying out the Great Commission, having begun in Jerusalem with the remnant of Israel. On this particular day that we're reading about now, Peter and John had just healed a lame man, who had been asking for alms at the temple gate. Now at the porch of Solomon, the people had gathered together to behold the miracle and to listen to Peter as he spoke. We understand there's about 5,000 men gathered there this day. Lifting up Jesus as the great healer and the savior of mankind, Peter brings his message home to the hearts of the listeners. He reminds them it was only a short time before that they had stood in Pilate's court crying, Crucify Jesus and give us the murderer Barabbas. Now let's pick up the story in verse 17. Now brethren, I know you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now listen to his appeal and his prediction of future events in verses 19 through 21. Don't miss this. Peter now says under inspiration, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be what? Blotted out out so that what? The refreshing may come from the presence of God and then what? That he may send Jesus, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Quote. Even though Peter and John had already received the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and had already received early rain power to preach the gospel to the world, they looked forward to a time when the confessed sins of mankind would be blotted out so that Jesus could return following the restoration of all things. Are you with me? Now, before I go over these verses one last time, let me give you a little history about the Advent movement. Shortly after the 1888 disappointment, when the Adventist thought Jesus was going to come, Hiram Edson, one of those who believed in the Advent, came to understand the biblical teaching of Leviticus 16, verses 30 through 34. He saw these verses in light of what Jesus, his great high priest, was actually doing in heaven as he was reading the verse. Listen to this quote, and I'm taking this from a manuscript by the late Dr. C. Mervin Maxwell, and it's entitled, Ready for His Appearing. This is what he says. little history here. According to the Bible, when the high priest entered the most holy place on the of the earthly sanctuary on the typical day of atonement in September or October of each year, his great purpose was not to officiate at a judgment. It was rather to make an atonement for the sanctuary and to make an atonement for you to cleanse you that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It was a day of atonement on which all sin was removed so that man and God could be at one in a very special sense. End quote. I find that fascinating. On the following page, 16, Dr. Maxwell tells us that Hiram Edson, along with other early Adventists, wrote out this new understanding and published it in the Day Star Extra, dated February 7, 1846. In that little publication, they showed from Scripture that on October 22, 1844, Jesus began a great work of cleansing or of blotting out of sins. And believe it or not, there was not a single line in that extra that talked about judgment. In fact, the idea of judgment in the sanctuary did not even come about until a number of years later, when they learned that the Day of Atonement was also a day of judgment which was to begin at the very house of God. And according to Leviticus 23, they also discovered that those who did not enter into this great typical day of atonement would be cut off from among the people, indicating an act of judgment. But here's my point. In Acts 3, verse 19, Peter looked forward to a time when a blotting out would begin. This idea of blotting out was not a new concept. In fact, by putting just two Old Testament passages together, we discover that when the blotting out takes place, either our sins will be blotted out, or our names will be blotted out of the books of heaven. Which do you want? I want my sins blotted out, beloved, not my name. Amen? Amen. Now, you can read about that. Here are your two texts. Jot them down. Nehemiah, Old Testament. Nehemiah, chapter 4, verse 5, and read that whole chapter because you'll get the flow of why the prayer of Nehemiah was as it was. And also Exodus 32, verse 32, and you'll understand in context why Moses was praying the prayer he prayed. And then for those of you that have the little book called Testimonies to Ministers, you might want to take a look at page 445 and read that. And find that very fascinating in light of what we're talking about. Now what I find most significant, beloved, about Peter's comment in Acts 3.19. Is in order for the times of refreshing to come or the latter rain. The blotting out of sins must take place. Do you want me to say it again? Very important you understand this. In order for the times of refreshing to come or the latter rain to fall. The blotting out of sins must take place. Do you understand what Peter's saying here in Acts three nineteen? It's classic. Peter had just experienced a miniature, if you please, time of refreshing, or the early rain. But he's already looking forward to the final time of refreshing or the latter reign, which will make it possible for all the prophecies that have ever been written to be fulfilled so that Jesus can come and set up his everlasting kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Now take your Bible again, if you would, and look at Acts 3.19. One more time. Let's lay it out step by step so we'll see this incredible prophecy of Peter. Number one, repent, which means confess your sins. Number two, be converted. That means be born again. Number three, that your sins may be blotted out. That means in the great anti-typical day of atonement. Number four, so that the times of refreshing may come. That means so the latter rain may come from the presence of the Lord. Number five, and that he may send Jesus. That means the second coming of Jesus in the clouds of glory. Number six. Only then will all things have been restored. That means everything spoken by the prophet since the world began. Now let me read it again. Only this time from the 1888 edition of the Great Controversy. I'm reading from pages 611 and 612. Listen carefully. The great work of the gospel... Is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former rain at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter rain at its close. Here are the times of refreshing to which the apostle Peter looked forward when he said, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out in the investigative judgment when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus, end quote. I have a question. In summary, what happens when Jesus finally has his chosen ones or his servants... Whose sins have gone beforehand to judgment and have been blotted out? What happens then? According to God's word, an angel will ascend from the east. And the servants of God will not only be sealed or settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved but they will also be empowered by the latter rain to give the three angels' messages to the entire world, beginning at the house of spiritual Israel. Let's read the next two paragraphs and see how it all wraps up after the refreshing or the latter rain falls upon that special group of God's people. I'm quoting. Next paragraph says, Servants of God with their faces lighted up, And shining with holy consecration will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed and signs and wonders will follow the believers. Satan also works with lying wonders, even bringing down fire from heaven in the sight of men. Thus the inhabitants of the earth will be brought to take their stand. The messages will be carried not so much by argument as by the deep conviction of the Spirit of God. The arguments have been presented. That's what we're doing now. Through television and radio and the printed page, sharing the good news of a soon coming Savior. So she says the arguments have been presented, the seeds have been sown, and now it will spring up and bear fruit. The publications distributed by missionary workers have exerted their influence, yet many whose minds were impressed have been prevented from fully comprehending the truth or from yielding obedience. And now the rays of light penetrate everywhere. The truth is seen in its clearness. And the honest children of God sever the bands which have held them. Family connections, church relations are powerless to stay them now. Truth is more precious than all besides. Notwithstanding the agencies combined against the truth, a large number take their stand upon the Lord's side. In quote and praise God. As we face the close... Of this last cycle, if you please, of earth's history. May the words of Peter speak to you and me today. Repent and be born again. So your sins may be blotted out in this great day of atonement. So the refreshing power of the latter rain might fall. So the three angels' messages might be carried for the last time to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus might come and claim us as his own. Father, today, as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I'm wondering if there's someone here along with Pastor today that would just like to say, God, keep me faithful. If you want Jesus to stand with you in that day, are you willing to stand with him now? If you are, raise your hand with me. Would you do that? Thank you, God, you see our hands. And I pray that you will accept our hands of faith, of our belief and trust in you, to see us through, in Jesus' name, amen.